It's good to be back with you. I want to thank Bill again for filling in the last two weeks. Really appreciate that. And uh, we are in chapter two as we're going through the book of Revelation. And um, chapter one is a chapter that we kind of reflect on and we look at the beginning of this book. Uh, Chapters four through the end are uh, what we would consider these future prophetic chapters that everyone wants to study. But really, chapters two and three hit us close to home. Because Paul, or excuse me, John writes these letters to literal churches, uh, real churches of that day, but yet also we see that they are written to the church uh, today and the same struggles that we have. And so it is always uncomfortable when someone calls out sin. It is extremely uncomfortable when someone calls out our sin. And uh, that's really what goes on here uh, Jesus gives this uh, messenger, and then uh, John writes it, and it is sent to the church. And uh, the pastors or the elders of those churches, one of them read them to the congregation. And the congregation would have uh, then uh, sent these letters, um, and they would have studied the book as an entirety. Uh, But just a little bit about chapter 2. We're looking starting tonight at the church at Ephesus. And if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, if you'd flip over to the book of Acts with me, uh, we can see the beginning of the church at Ephesus. And uh, we can see where in the end of chapter 18, there's a man by the name of Apollos, and he's preaching the Scriptures. Um, And he was fervent in spirit, and he taught accurately the things of the Lord, even though he didn't understand everything. He knew John's baptism, if you look there in verses 24 through 26. And Aquila and Priscilla heard him, took him aside, and explained to him the way of God more accurate. And so we see someone that was fervent, someone that loved God, but yet needed some correction. And these two individuals did that. And then in chapter 19, we see that Paul appears at... Uh, Ephesus, and uh, begins to teach. And we know that on his second journey, he was just there for a short period of time, but on his third missionary journey, he spent over three years with this congregation. And so this church at Ephesus uh, is now being referred to in Revelation chapter 2. This was an amazing work of God, if you can read in chapters 19 uh, and even into chapter 20. Uh, we know that God, in verse 13 there, it says, Now God worked unusual miracles by the hand of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were bought, brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. And so this is a, a powerful move of God. We know that there was such a move of God that they began to burn their books of witchcraft. They began to leave their idolatry so much that if you were to look over in chapter 19 at verse 23 and verse 24, and about that time there arose a great commotion about the way for a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, 
you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned many away, away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. And so uh, they have a, a, a riot, they have an uprising. We see there that uh, uh, the city clerk gets involved. Because why? This pagan worship was being so affected by Christians that they were not buying the things of pagan religion. You know it had to be of God because people stopped spending their money on what they wanted and started spending it on what God wanted. And if you know anything about spending money, uh, that's usually where it hits most people the hardest. Right? They can give some time. They can give some of their talent. But when it begins to hit the checkbook, all bets are off. If you flip over into chapter 20, as Paul is making his way, uh, he has the elders from this church meet him and he talks to them about how they should live with humility and how he lived in the faith. And he was on his way to Jerusalem, as you know there in verse 22, and see now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every saying, saying the chains and tribulation awaits me. And so if you go on down, you can look that he tells them to oversee the flock, to shepherd the church. And, and he goes on and tells about these things that he encourages them to do, the, the concerns that he has for them. And this is how much they love Paul, because in verse 36 and 37, those are yours, aren't they? Hey. Yep. Okay. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. So this church at Ephesus was a church that had seen God move. They were a church that had been tempted with the things of the world, but yet had fled from them. They were a church that loved one another. How they loved Paul here. How they wept. How they wanted to see him. But yet in the book of Revelation we see now, as some time has passed, this letter is written with this church in mind. Ephesus would have been probably one of the world's first and greatest metropolises. It would have been a city that had flourished economically. It was a city at that time, which now if you were to go to modern day Turkey... You would find it about seven miles from the shore because so much silt and stuff has came down the river that it closed the harbor. And so it's not the same city that it was. But in this day and age, it was the New York of America. It would have been the financial capital of this area. There would have been highways that went toward Babylon, would have went north, would have went south. And this was a town that had great architecture, it had great temples. It had great Roman engineering. It, had, it was a city that was magnificent by the world standards. And so when we see this being written, it is very important not to forget the setting that it is written to. Because when we come to Revelation chapter 2, it says, "...to the angel of the church of Ephesus write." 
These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand. And if you were here for chapter 1, you can look back on that. Who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, and your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those that say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have perceived and have patient and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. Or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Here on this paperwork that you have, these are some pictures of Roman structures that are still today, that are still there that you can see. The great theater, on the second page you can go and see the library of Celsus. And this one here today, all you can see is the ruins and one pillar, but the temple of Artemis, the temple of Diana. It was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. The columns would have been between 40 and 60 feet tall. And you can see by this picture, it not only operated as a temple, it operated as a bank. It also operated as a place where criminals could come and find refuge. And so you would have had people worshiping with their gold and their silver. It would have been a house of prostitution. It would have been a place where criminals were avoiding paying taxes, avoiding the Roman government because this was considered a free city. It would have been a place that people were buying and selling. It would have been unbelievable. I don't mean unbelievably good necessarily, but it would have been unbelievable. And so here Paul, here Apollos, Aquila and Priscilla begin to do the work of God and the Spirit begins to move. And I think this is important because it was a prosperous city. It was a wicked city. It was a city that had the attention of the world, but yet God worked. And I would just say that while America is the financial capital of the world, why our prosperity is unlike any other, our wickedness has grown great, where lawlessness has begun to abound, I believe that God can still work, that God can still save. And so we see here the church at Ephesus. We see the fact that Jesus walks in the midst of it. In verse 1 there. This is the idea that He is watching what is going on. That He is involved in what is going on. It gives us this idea that when you and I congregate as a church, when the church at Ephesus congregated as a church, when the church at Smyrna congregated as a church, when the church at Pergamos congregated that the Lord was involved, that the Lord was at work. And so while we come to worship, we do not just come to gather like you do for a high school graduation. We do not gather like you would for a Masonic Lodge meeting. We do not gather like they would for a meeting of the high school band. No, when we gather together as believers, it is a special assembly. 
It is to worship Jesus. It is to be moved and led by the Spirit of God. And the problem that I see in the church is that we have become cold and dead and unwilling to be led by the Spirit. On the flip side of that, I see in many churches a desire to, be, to want to be led by the Spirit, but yet can be led by the flesh, can be led by emotions, can be led by feelings. And that can be just as dangerous as well. But in verse 1, he begins to tell them what is going on. But in chapter 2, or verse 2, he begins to commend them, to tell them about what he is pleased with. And so if you're taking notes, there on the second page, on that empty line, he says they lived out their faith, faith and held others accountable. Held others accountable. If someone wants to find this, it's not going to be in your notes. John chapter 4 Verses 1 through 3. We will look at that in just a minute. But in chapter 2, verse 2, it says, I know your works or deeds. And this word for deeds can be used as serving through hardship. Your labor, which can mean you're working for the Lord always. Your patience or perseverance through the challenges. And that you cannot bear or endure those who are evil. And that you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. Now, there is a common saying that you will hear all the time. God hates the sin, but hates the sinner. But did you know there are multiple verses in this book of Psalms that say God not only hates the sin, but hates the sinner? Unrepentant sin will bring the judgment and wrath of God. Now, does God love sinners? Absolutely. He proved that in that He died for the unrighteous and that He wants to seek and save that which is lost. But friends, it is not someone's sin that is sent to hell. It is that sinner. And so we must be very careful when we talk about the grace and mercy of God not to hide the fact that God also judges the person. He judges them for their wickedness. I uh, preach a lot of funerals, as you know, and I have recently uh, preached some with people that have told me uh, they are agnostic. They don't really believe. And uh, my first response was at the funeral to say, now they believe, but I did not. I'm trying to be much more refined and dignified as I get older. And you're saying, well, that's not saying much. It's a work in progress, okay? It is a work in progress. But yet I also, on the other hand, preach a lot of funerals with people that know the Lord. I know their testimony. I know their walk with the Lord. And so it is an encouragement. And so I have to be very careful not to try to preach people into heaven. It's not my job to preach someone into heaven. Once you die, you're either there or you're not. And so I have preached many a funeral and talked about what heaven is like and what it takes to get there. And uh, people will come up to me afterwards and say, do you think my loved one's there? And I always say, I cannot answer that for you. I don't know. Only they know and the Lord knows, the heart. But what I can tell you is, if you do not repent of your sins and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, when you leave this world, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And uh, recently I've done some funerals and I've uh, uh, really struggled with it and I've had to talk about like today is the day that you should live for. Today is the day that you should focus on. Today is the day of salvation. And so spend the time that God has given you to reconcile with your family, to reconcile with Him, to not waste a day 
that God has given you. And so I think it's just very important here, though, when we see this, that he commends them for not only what they are doing in their own walk with God, but how they are holding accountable other people. Now, you would say, and I would say, in today's world, that accountability is a very negative word. It usually gets spun on something like this, don't judge others. And I am not on Facebook anymore because if I have to see one Christian put some half-infidel liberal thing on there again, I'm going to slap somebody. And so I just don't get on there. Well-meaning usually, well-intended, but wrong, biblically wrong. And what we see here is very important because it shows us that I am not only responsible for my walk with the Lord, I am also responsible for helping those that God brings into my life and their walk with the Lord. And in this passage of Scripture, it is specifically talking to the apostles who are not real apostles. And today we could look at that as teachers who are not really teaching God's Word. Now, I'm not saying there are apostles today. I believe that office and that gift ceased, all right, at the completion of the New Testament. Now we have elders and pastors, and, and uh, but it's the principle is the same. And so for whoever had John chapter 4 and would like to read verses 1 through 3, we give this, uh, are given the test to how to prove and evaluate that situation. John chapter 4. Did I say John or 1st John? John. Go to 1st John. I think I told you that one wrong. Sorry. 1st John. There we go. No, verses 1 through 3. So it tells us to test what we hear, to evaluate the Word of God that is taught. And it clearly tells us there that when you begin to teach uh, errors about who Jesus is and when He came, that you are not a real teacher of the Word of God. And so if John has given us how to evaluate and the Lord has encouraged them by the fact that they have evaluated, why do we think God would not want us to evaluate? Now, what happens is, and this is happening right now, and I'm going to wade into it because I really don't care. I have no comment on what's going on at different Christian colleges in America today. But I see a lot of people who have a lot to say both ways. I've read articles by people who think it's not of God, it's not right, it shouldn't be going on. I've seen other people write and read. And what it has done is it has caused great division in the body. And whether you fall on that issue or not, don't matter. We can talk about it privately. But we have to be very careful that every time something goes on, we do not have to share our opinion. We don't have to have an opinion on everything. 
on everything that's going on in the world, every decision the Supreme Court makes, every decision that Congress makes, every sermon that someone preached, we have to be very careful to be accountable and hold others accountable, but to never forget why we do it. And this is really important in this passage of Scripture because when you look here in verses 2, 3, and 4, it's talking about holding others accountable, living for ourselves, about persevering and having patience. And what he's saying is, is that this is not easy. This is not a one-time event. They are always being on guard. They're always on guard in their personal life. They're always on guard in what they hear. Because in verse 3, he commends them for not growing weary. Some people think, well, you know, we had this battle in the 80s about whether the Bible is the Word of God. We don't have to, we don't have to worry about things anymore. Absolutely wrong. We must always be on guard. Every sermon that you hear me preach, I always tell you to please get your Bible open and take notes. You say, Jake, I don't like to take notes. Well, you should because your memory is probably like mine. And you forget most of what was said. But you ought to be able to write that down to make sure that while I might mispronounce a word or I might tell you to go to John and I'm in Genesis or, or I might misquote something that you can come and say, wait, that doesn't sound right. That's not, that's not, I'm, I'm, I'm confused here. What are you trying to say? Because why? I am not above error. No pastor is perfect. No Sunday school teacher is infallible. Now, let's be clear. I've had plenty of people that have not done it out of love. Right? I'll never forget the lady that said, Pastor, you, you know how I know your sermons don't come from the Internet? Some of you have heard this. No, because no one preaches that bad. <laughs> now, that was pretty funny. I'll give her that. But we have to be on guard. You need... <laughs> I know, you, I write, should write a book about this stuff. But you need to know that you will grow weary if you're not careful. You say, I just want to come in church and, and I just want to feel it. Right? I hear people all the time that want to go to great big churches with great big music and lights and smoke. And, and it doesn't matter what the preacher is. I feel good while I'm there. What was the sermon about? I don't care. I worship so good and so amazing that, that we didn't even have preaching. That is a dangerous thing. When the Bible says that the Word of God is powerful, when the Word of God is used by the Spirit to change lives, when the preaching of the gospel is the power of God, then you congregate and say, we didn't have preaching. We didn't even open the Bible tonight. The Lord just moved so much, we didn't even need the Bible. I want you to know that's a dangerous thing. Now, I'm not saying testimony service can't go on and things can't happen, but be very careful. Be very careful when you are involved in church, when you are involved in the things of God, and God's Word is not the focus, when God's Word is not the foundation. Now, I think we have Baptists have taken that too far the other direction and, uh, and don't want the Spirit to do anything. And I think the Pentecost have went the other direction and felt everything and do not want the Scriptures. We have to find a balance where we worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. Now, what's going to happen is my Pentecostal friends are going to get on to me and my Baptist friends are going to get on to me because I criticize both groups. And that's okay. It doesn't bother me. But you are responsible for your walk with God and holding your local church responsible. 
it's easy to criticize Joel. I mean, let's be honest, right? If you watch Joel for any length of time, you're going to like, that's not right. Or if you watch that lady who doesn't think she's a lady and her face doesn't look like a lady Joyce anymore, you know, <laughs> she, you can listen to her and find out she's not. You can listen to someone like T.D. Jakes and pretty quick realize there are some major problems. But what we ought to be doing is probably turning that on, or turning that off, excuse me, and re-listening to the Sunday school lesson that we took notes in. Re-listening to the sermon to make sure that I heard it right, that it is, that it is accurate. How many of you have restrictions on what your children or grandchildren can watch on television? Hopefully, hopefully you do. Hopefully you restrict their phone time. You watch what it is to know whether or not it is quality, whether it is correct. The same should go on in your church. The same should go on in Bible studies. One of, and this is going to get me in more trouble, but I don't care. Like I said, I'm on a roll tonight. One of the greatest issues of heresy in the church today, and it's not here because we have worked so hard on it, are women Bible studies. I know what you're saying, Jake. I can't believe you said that. Our women's ministry works extremely hard to go through the material and Karen and Selena and the ladies make sure that it is the Word of God. But most women Bible studies are written by some woman who wants to be a pastor, who doesn't want to listen to her husband, and is liberal as all get out. I know what you're saying, Jack. I can't believe you said it. It is the truth. And if you'd like examples, I would love to show them to you on a private time. And so we have to be on guard. And so every time there's a women's Bible study, I always appreciate Karen will call me and say, Jake, would you look at it? Uh, Dave and I have looked at it. We, it looks good. It looks like it's from an, art, an author that's good. Uh, and it's edifying to the body. Because why? I've been in a lot of churches and I, I visit a lot of churches and read a lot of church bulletins and they'll pull something up and they'll be doing a Bible study by someone. I'm like, wait a second. That guy doesn't even believe in the Trinity. That guy's teaching a, do- a lesson on salvation and he doesn't even believe in the security of the believer. And so we have to be on guard as a local church. We have to care enough about the Word of God and the things of God to make sure that what we are being taught is the Word. Galatians 6, and we'll stop for your uh, comments and discussion, literally says, Let him who is taught the Word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, he will reap. For he who sows to his flesh will also of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity... Let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Don't grow weary standing on what is right. Don't grow weary being the one person in your church that is trying to make godly decisions. What is wrong in most churches? And this is probably going to be quoted by churches everywhere. Is a person or a family has wiggled themselves in and they are the biggest giver... They have the most important office, and they have destroyed that church. They've ran off different people. Uh, They've made ungodly decisions, but they are too powerful to hold accountable. 
And what happens is you can watch that church's history and it just becomes a slow decline. That one family, especially in small churches, it's more than one person. It's usually one family. And that one family makes all the decisions, all the ideas, all the decisions, and eventually, because no one can hold them accountable, it ends up what? Dead. Cold. Why? Because it's not worth the fight. It's not worth doing what is right. And I don't believe you ought to go to every fight that you're involved to, but I believe when your church is involved, when the things of God's Word are involved, you should get involved. You should be praying. You should be discussing. Now, how do we discuss? One-on-one, two or three together, um, not at the coffee shop after the sermon, but together. Why? Because what we see is if God commended this church for how they lived and how they held the teachers of God's Word accountable, He will do the same for us. God will commend this church for doing the things that other churches have been commended for. Thoughts? Questions? Mm-hmm. Isn't it a, um, you know, this is coming from Paul, I was trying to find the, the reference to it, but basically Jesus is the one that appointed the apostles and that ended with Paul. Mm-hmm. He had to be face-to-face with Christ, mm-hmm. and it's being, it's being in the risen Christ to be an apostle. Yes. So anybody else claiming to be an apostle would be a false apostle. And I think you see that in the book of Revelation when you start seeing the 12 tribes represented and the 12 apostles represented in the later book of Revelation. But what has happened is that has been the church's belief for 1,900 years. But in the last 100 years with the special revelation and all this encountering God, you see apostle, apostle, apostle because they've had a face-to-face encounter with the Lord. They thought they did, yes. So I do. I believe the, the office of past the office of the apostle ceased, and now you have elders, which that is the qualifications in First Timothy, uh, Titus chapter one of the teachers and leaders of the local church. More scripture, possibly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's believed that after Jerusalem got crazy, you know, John was given charge of Mary mm-hmm. the cross, that Ephesus is where he brought yes. Mary, and there's supposedly a house where Mary lived out her life in Ephesus. Yeah, you can actually go today, and it's a sacred spot of where John lived and took care of Mary. Yes. But, I mean, it would make sense that, you know, since he was exiled in And this would have been, Ephesus would have been the church that all of these other churches in the book of Revelation started out of. It would have been the mother church. And so when you think about 10 Miles history, uh, 10 Miles started uh, Sugar Camp. It started Blooming Grove by sending members that the church agreed. It started another church, but it wasn't the right way. Um, But when the church agrees to send people... Uh, to start a church and prays for them and commissions them, that's actually the New Testament model. And so what we see here is this was a very important church. What happened here spread to the other churches. Other thoughts?
And even though God commended them, now he is getting ready to correct them. And if you grew up in church like I did, this verse was very simple. But when you begin to study this verse, there is a whole lot of disagreement on what this verse actually means in verse 4. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. There are two thoughts, and what my goal in Revelation is to teach you what people believe, why they believe it, and you can make up your own mind. The first interpretation is that they have lost their zeal and passion for Jesus. Right? They have left that first love that they had as a young, vibrant church. Other people feel that it is that they have lost their passion of love for each other. And when you read this text, it's talking about living through difficulties, correcting and holding accountable those who are teaching wrong. And what some people believe is that while it is our job to hold one another accountable, if you don't do it in love, then you have lost the blessing of God. I personally think it can be either. I personally have I, I have no problem with you putting them both together. Whether it is a lack of love for the Lord, that they have just gone through the motions, or the fact that they have been doing the right things, but not for the right reasons. In the context of what it's talking about, it's all about enduring. It's all about dealing with other people. It's all about persevering. So yes, that does, I think, fit the context of what it is going on here. And so you and I can lose our passion for the Lord, And we can lose our passion for loving other believers. Now, I want to read to you what the pulpit commentary states, and it's there in your notes. It may mean thy love of the brethren. So much insisted upon in St. John's first epistle, if you've read that. More probably, though, it means thy first love for me. Christ is here speaking as the bridegroom and addresses the church of Ephesus as his bride. And you can look back in Jeremiah 2. The thought would be familiar to the Ephesians from St. Paul's teaching in Ephesians 5. And so what we see here, though, is whether you are worshiping Jesus, but worshiping him through the motions, or whether you are loving your brethren, but yet not loving them with your heart, and truly caring about them, both of them is corrected by God. Now... Like I said, you can study the language, you can study the, the, the way it is written, and you will still find people that cannot agree. But what I have really spent a lot of time on is praying about both of them. Because most days, I don't have as much trouble, love, trouble loving Jesus as I do loving you. Let's just be honest. Most days, I have no problems loving Jesus, but yet it's sometimes hard to love my wife. Some days, it's really easy to love Jesus, but struggle with putting that love into action for my children. And I think that's very important for us because why? We can, when we think about the Lord, we think about the good things He's done for us. The way He's taken care of us, the way He's provided for us, the way He has met all of our needs. But yet when we think of our spouses, not only do we think of the good, we think of the bad. We think about our kids as they could be the greatest, most wonderful blessing in the world. And then in the very same moment, think I brought you into the world, I can take you out of the world. And so when we see this, God tells them their fault. And I think that is so important for us as a church. 
One, because any time that God is blessing you, it is easy to begin to coast. When there's not a lot of friction in the water, it's easy to just coast. When you run, and I don't run anymore, but in high school I ran uh, some cross country, right? Uphill is miserable, downhill is less miserable. There is no part of that running that is fun to me, all right? But downhill was less miserable because you could put your arms down, you could kind of just let gravity do its job. And that's how we are sometimes in our walk with the Lord. If you've ever run uphill, you're supposed to use your arms, shorten your stride, and push and persevere. When you go down, you're supposed to let out your stride and let gravity do its case. And in Christianity, and especially in the church, that's how things go. People are being saved, attendance is up, giving's good, sermons aren't too long. Most people don't worry about good, just not long. Things are fine. We don't pray like we should. We don't sacrifice like we good should. But you look at this church and many other churches' greatest moments of spiritual blessings were usually in times of great difficulty, of times of great hurt, times of great pain. Why do you think it is that when churches lose their pastor, they call for prayer meetings to pray for the man that God would send them, but they don't have meetings to pray for the pastor when they have them? I'm just throwing that out there. I'm not saying you should or shouldn't. We've got to pray about the next man. But we're not going to meet to pray for the man that we got. That's kind of a, that's kind of a thought I have with that. Mm-hmm. The longer you're a Christian, the more things you take for granted. Absolutely. I mean, even with your salvation, it's you know, Absolutely. But, you know, lose the, how amazing the grace that God extended to us is. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And then, as the longer we're saved as well, and we deal with people at a church, the longer that we deal with people in church, well, they begin to rub us the wrong way. The longer you go to church with people, the more you will notice their faults. You will know the quirky things they say in Sunday school that drive you up a wall. Those things that you might disagree about in your faith. The things you don't like about how they parent. I mean, it's just that's the way it is. And so you and I have to constantly be seeking the Lord, saying, Lord, help me to forgive the people I go to church with. Help me to be a person that is speech is seasoned and, and is kind and compassionate. How many times do you think a guest is treated better than a long-term member? Hope so. Hope so. But really, we ought to treat everybody that same mentality. That it is a privilege for you to be here today. We're glad that you're in worship today. I have to be very careful of that as a pastor. Right? I want to be friendly to the guest. I want to be friendly to the to the person that's new here. I want to be friendly to the person that's got no one sitting with them on Wednesday night. But sometimes it's not just because I want to be friendly to that person. I'm just going to be honest with you. It's because that person doesn't annoy me like some other people do. I know what you're saying, Jack. I can't believe you said it. It's the truth. That's why some of always sit with the same people because they might not be your favorite people, but you don't think they're going to do any damage to you. Just throwing it out there. You take it for what it's worth, right? I'll be here this week as all week. You can come see me anytime. That's how we are. We get comfortable. Well, what if I sit down with this person and, and, and they believe something I don't believe or they challenge me on something that I don't agree with them on? That, that's uncomfortable. That could be a problem. Maybe they don't agree with on the way I vote or the way I raise my kids or how I teach them or all of these things and it becomes awkward. I am a terribly awkward person. 
Because one, I am too dumb to realize that just because someone disagrees with you doesn't mean you have to tell them. I should be able to let us disagree and just not say anything. So my, my family tells me, Jake, we don't need to know that you disagree with us, but you need to know that I disagree with you. And sometimes I just need to listen and be like, okay, that's not the way I think, but you know what? It's not a big deal. I had that happen today at the funeral home. Someone was telling me, Jake, I don't talk about religion and politics. I said, oh, those are my favorite two things to talk about. I said, my problem is I don't always talk about them in grace and in love. But I don't care to talk about my faith, what it takes to go to heaven. I believe that if a pastor doesn't talk about their faith to lost people, they're no pastor at all. Because we're to be watchmen, warning people on the wall. That's important. And if, if you're a Christian at your place of employment, if you are not sharing your faith when God gives you the opportunity, shame on you. Because God has put you there for a reason. To witness and to love them. You should have a passion for Him and for their souls. And so what we see here in this passage of Scripture, wherever you fall on that, is that we are to love God and love others. We are to love God and love others. Questions, thoughts. Some of you are just taking notes with things I'm saying that's making you mad. So just keep them and I'll address them afterwards, right? Verse 5. God instructs them how they should respond. This is why I love the Word of God. It doesn't just point out our faults, our weaknesses, and our sins. It tells us how to correct them. In verse 5, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. So remember what it was like. Remember what it used to be like. Repent and do the first works. Now, if you were here Sunday night, you missed the greatest sermon ever. No, I'm just kidding. No, that's just a joke. But it was this exact same message in the book of Joel. Conviction, you understand what you've done wrong. Repentance is acknowledging it to God and turning from it and then doing what? What God's Word says. That's exactly what it says here. Remember from where you have fallen. Recognize that there's a problem. Repent. That's not that you just feel sorry for it. That's not that you understand and make excuses. And do the first works. He says, you've got to come back to loving me. Or you've got to come back to loving your fellow believers. Or else. Or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. Unless you repent. Um, the first day I was off last week, I had a commitment that I was going to preach to the Salem South Baptist Association of Mount Vernon. Association of 40-some Baptist churches, and, um, and they meet quarterly and have a meal and a meeting, and they asked me to be their guest speaker. And as I told some of you, the guy that used to be there was leaving, and he asked me on his way out. He never asked me while he was going to have to answer for my sermon, but he asked me after he left. And so when he comes as the Baptist Children's Home Director, you can tease him of that in April. And the sermon that I preached on was from the book of Isaiah about how if we regard iniquity in our heart, the Lord will not hear us. And I just preach that if you want to know the problem in your church, if you want to know the problem in your association, it's the fact that we will not repent for the sin that is among us. That's it. I don't need you to write a book about how to reach people. I don't need a book about how to be a better pastor. I don't need a book about anything. I just need myself and God's people to repent. To repent and really get right with God and watch what He could do. And that's what the Lord says here. 
And this is important because I do not believe that he's talking to an individual here. He's talking to a church. That's very important, okay? He's not talking about taking their salvation from them. He's talking about their ability to have light in a dark world, to be used by God to reach the lost, used by God to make a difference. It is talking about their witness and the Spirit of God at work in that church. But I want you to see what he says there. Or else I will come to you quickly. You say, but the Bible says that God's long-suffering. He's patient. He, 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 all of those things. And He is. But I want you to see how serious God views His church. That He is coming quickly to correct it. He is coming quickly to discipline it. And so as a church, we must always be on guard. We must always be on guard in our faith and how we love each other. How we are taught the Word of God. How we are living out our faith. Because he says twice here, repent or unless you repent. That's why I say this all the time and and I'm in the minority, but that's okay. No matter if you like old music or new music, it ought to be done well. All right, You ought to sing with passion and with desire and a love for Jesus. Doesn't matter if you like the lights on in worship or off in worship. Doesn't matter if you like to dress up for church or don't dress up for church. None of those things in the Bible are what says the Spirit blesses or does not bless. Those are not what the Bible says either quenches the Spirit or doesn't quench the Spirit. You can have wonderful worship with no music at all. You can have a wonderful prayer meeting with nothing flashy at all. Because why? The issue is always sin. And if you and I are willing to get along with God and admit our sin as an individual, and our sin as a church body, the Lord will work. Not because He has to, but because He wants to. Questions? Thoughts? I'm going to try to finish these last two very quickly. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Benson's commentary says, Remember, therefore, it is not possible for any church or individual, whether a public teacher or private member that has lost the first love to recover it, but by taking the three steps that are here spoken. Remember, repent, and do. Verse 6, God encourages them to have the same focus. The same focus. And so in verse 6, what does it say? But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And uh, this group of people, we are not exactly sure who they are, but we do know that they are accused of a couple things. And you have in there uh, John MacArthur's commentary, and it ties back into Balaam and the leading the children of Israel away to idolatry. Uh, we can look in, uh, the later on in the book of Revelation and see that it was sexually immoral. 
And so these individuals were trying to get them to go back to worshiping false idols and to worship false idols and commit sexual immorality in that worship. And so the Lord says, I hate that. And you hate that. And you have not embraced in that. And so what we see here is churches can slip on different levels. And we see that throughout the book of Revelation. Some churches are gently nudged to correct, and some, their faults are many. And so what you and I need to know is, I think it is important but yet not vital to recognize something. That the first church that he addresses, he tells them they have drifted from their first love. All right, they're still doing good things, but yet they have started to drift. The last church that he addresses... The lukewarm church, he is talking about vomiting them out of his mouth. And so I think churches begin the slide that you see in the book of Revelation. It starts with losing that first love. It starts by growing cold to one another. You don't just wake up one day and be a church that's totally broken and in shambles and all of those things. And we look there, it's the persecuted church. And so they begin to be persecuted and because their love for God and love for each other is not as firm and as desirable as it should be, then they begin to what? Compromise. They compromise under persecution. And so they've started to drift. They face some troubled times. They've now begun to compromise. Then we look and it's the corrupt church. It's the slippery slope that leads down. Then we see the dead church. We see a, once again though, the faithful church of yours has headings like mine do. But then, because I believe as the church begins to slide, we have to be reminded that even in the difficulty, there are faithful believers that we end up in the last church with the lukewarm church. I believe that is the case that we must avoid. If we're today in that state of being drifting from our first love, know that that's not where it will stay. We either either repent and return to the Lord for a season of refreshing or we will slide down the slippery slope. Next thing it'll be when persecution comes, when someone does something to you that they shouldn't do, there's no forgiveness, it's all fear, it's all anger. When something comes that rocks the boat a little bit, we don't row together, we begin to attack each other with the oars. Then once the ship begins to take on water and things begin to get bad, we compromise. We compromise to try to keep things together instead of doing what's right. And then that just begins to let the rot set in. And look what it says here in that verse 6. And you can read MacArthur's commentary on your own because we just don't have time. But it says there at the end of that, (laughs) I like this. The word Nicholas comes from two Greek words, Nike for which today the word is Nike, which that's not how you pronounce it in the Greek, but anyway, which means to conquer, and the word laos, to conquer people. The word means conqueror of people, one who conquers the people. Listen to this. The Hebrew word for Balaam means the destroyer of people. What you have here with Nicholas in the New Testament appears to be the same as you had with Balaam In the Old Testament, this is someone who by false teaching leads people into destructive sin. And so they're saying, that's not what you want. You are willing to stand on the truth, but don't forget why you do what you do. And in verse 7, and I'll finish. 
get you out a little early tonight, is God gives them a promise. All of these letters are written in the same way. And someone much smarter than me is the first to write it, right? He greets them, he commends them, he corrects them, and each letter is the same outline. But in verse 7, look what it says. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, was in the midst of the paradise of God. And what he's saying is, in the Old Testament, you have the tree of life literally, right, in the book of Genesis. In Proverbs and in the Psalms, it's a reference to divine blessings, the divine blessing of heaven. And so what I think it means in the New Testament is it's this idea of divine blessing in eternal paradise, an eternal garden. And so it is the idea of salvation, that if we will endure to the end, right, if we will love God and love others, we will inherit the kingdom of God. We will enjoy the promise of eternal life. But that is why it is so important to not be drawn away from what the Bible says. In 1 Peter chapter 3, it says this, But sanctify, or set apart, the Lord, Christ is Lord, in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and in fear. You've got to love God and love others enough to be willing to share what God has done in your life. That means in church. That means in your workplace. I was so blessed tonight. If you weren't here for the opening prayer, um, Mr. Clark was just standing there. He was ready to get his food. He was first in line. And so I'm like, hey, won't you bless the food? And he was like, okay, sure, no problem. And uh, I was like, wonderful, wonderful. Because I don't know if you know this, but there's a lot of people that struggle with anxiety and fear, do not like to pray in front of other people, don't want to share in front of other people. Uh, Like I said, Bill was the only one that was willing to fall on the sword of Wednesday night Bible study. Uh, And so I thank him for that. He did a wonderful job. And... um, but why? It's just because people will say, well, I don't think I can do a good job, or I, you know, I don't, what am I going to say, or what if I say something dumb? I'm like, listen, if you saying something dumb is what keeps you from serving the Lord, I have already proven that that doesn't have to stop you, all right? But yet there's that fear, right? A fear of being in front of people, fear of being used by God, but yet we ought to look for opportunities to share what God's done for us. We ought to look for opportunities to share our faith at work. We ought to look for opportunities for ways to serve God. You say, Jake, I don't want to be in front of adults. Well, I'll tell you what to do. You ought to volunteer at Vacation Bible School. Find the youngest group they'll let you work with and teach them. I taught the two- and three-year-old Sunday school class for a while, and uh, we sang the same song every week. Every week, I would get in that little puppet room back there, and if you taught a class next to me, you heard all kinds of fun stuff. We sang the same song every week. And you know what my kid sings now to this day? That same song. I'm not our teacher anymore. She says, Dad, well, can we sing our Sunday school song? Sure. It's something so simple. Trust and follow, trust and follow. I don't know what it is. Something very simple like that. Literally, three lines of a repeat. Trust and obey. I don't know what it is. But yet, it was so simple. So simple. Start there. Start there. Start, start being a Sunday school teacher assistant. Where you don't teach, but you just help them not kill each other, right? 
volunteer in Awanas, in Cubbies. Go back there and work with the little kids. And, and don't be the teacher, but just be the one that makes sure they go to the bathroom and stand out in the hallway and back. Look for opportunities to be used by God. You say, Jake, I can't teach. Well, volunteer in the nursery where you just have to make sure that if they poop, you change their diaper, right? Or if they hurt, you don't hurt them or something like that. Just start there. But be faithful in the little things and watch how God can use you. I said this to someone before church because he was playing the piano and he was doing a wonderful job. And uh, Keith, you can be mad at me later. But uh, and uh, I said, if God gives you a gift, use it. Gives you a gift, use it. And I'm just teasing. He does play the piano well, but he won't tell you that. But I will, because that's the kind of guy I am. But, uh, but use it. Maybe you don't want to play in front of church. Hey, go to Heritage Woods and sit down and play with them. They won't remember it anyway if you mess up. I'm kidding. I'm, that's a joke. I go every week. You know I love them. That's a joke. Huh? That's all right. I'm not worried. Hey. You get what you get. You can always find something. They'll tell you what it is, Jake. They will tell you what it is, but they'll forget next week. So, no. No, I'm kidding. I'm teasing. You, you know that, hopefully. So can you break this down in like a couple sentences? Yeah. The church at Ephesus mm-hmm. had lost their love for the Lord, Lord and others. And each other. Yes. And it was so serious that mm-hmm. I will remove your being useful to the kingdom. And so what you see is a cold, dead church that accomplishes nothing for the Lord. Brother John used to say it something like this. Why would God give new baby Christians to a church that's just going to chew them up and spit them out? And that's what we see. If we can't love each other, why would God use us to reach the lost? If we're going to fight and argue and and teach people to be um, Pharisees, and to be rule keepers instead of a relationship, why would God want to save them and bring them here? And so that's what I believe the Lord's saying here. If you want to be used, you have to love God and love each other. Yeah. Very much. Very true. Anything else? Verse 4. Fault. God tells them their fault. 